Toronto! I wonder if they can hear it on Long Island. Great move. What a goal. Beauty. Austin Matthews. Bless you, boys. What a game. Welcome, everyone, to the MLHS podcast. We have been reading your comments. I've been getting your messages. When are we recording a new one? I have been bothering Alec, who's shockingly joined us today, to hop on for like, I don't know, four or five months, whenever the last time he was on. And for the first time ever, I got a request from Gus that was like, we need to go on a podcast and talk about this team after they lost. So I'm going to go around. I'm excited for this episode. Alec, you can introduce yourself, although I think everyone knows who you are, and then we'll pass it off to Gus. Yeah, I'm I'm just now, I don't know about you guys, but I'm just now starting to reach the point where I even feel like I have an appetite to talk about the lease again. <laughs> Maybe that's why Gus messaged you and why I'm here. But like last year, <laughs> last year I was furious at how embarrassing the whole thing was of blowing three opportunities to close out, you know, your oldest rival and a clearly inferior team. This one just kind of, I don't know. It's just a super empty feeling. I don't know how you felt guys. So that actually is the biggest problem that I think I faced. And a lot of the people that I've probably spoken to have said something similar. It's not like you have something that you can kind of anchor your anger on. You're just kind of all over the place. Yeah, they did it. Yeah, but they played okay. Yeah, but they were competitive, but they they didn't get the break. And then that one game, and then, uh, but like, there's not one defining moment that we could have said similar to what happened with Montreal or Boston the year before that, or whatever the case is. So that lack of uh, target, yeah, it's huge, right? Because we're kind of in this abyss of this off season without a lot of kind of emotion to 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 really kind of drag us along maybe in the end that's actually a good thing because i think that we're going to see some pretty interesting moves coming out of toronto over the summer um and because of that i think that it's probably best that we go in there with a very unemotional state to begin with versus montreal you're right like it's it was pretty clear where the targets were going to be set which was like matthews and marner were totally disappointing as the series wore on uh with Columbus, like it was clear they had massive flaws on their defense. Uh, they got way out goaltended by Merzlikens and Corpusalo versus Anderson. This year, there's just there's less to be specifically disappointed about. Uh, the scapegoats are way less obvious, but it's also like the accumulation of all of the failure is just mm. almost too in- overwhelming to ignore at this point for me. Uh, like we can talk about Tampa Bay and Washington's patience to get over the hump, but like and Anthony's made this point before because we constantly talk about it in the group chat, but like the, at least they won a few series along the way. Like people Tampa went to the like, cup final in like yeah. 2015. They went and to the conference final and lost to the Bruins in seven. Like, it's not like they did nothing. It's just truly special what the Leafs are doing in terms of regular season excellence followed by playoff failure. And like against Tampa, their stars on the whole were like somewhere between good to very good. I would say, uh, Maybe they needed greatness and they only got good, but I don't know. Like Campbell was really solid. I thought their D was good enough. Their stars kept pace with like Tampa Bay stars. Like their stat lines were generally good against a great team with like a world-class goaltender. The reason I was terrified of Tampa and AP knows this because I was dumping my anxiety into the the group (laughs) chat for months before the playoffs (laughs) is that as much as I did, like 
like you guys on the podcast before the playoff series, you all predicted the Leafs win. I thought the Leafs could and would beat them, but I knew it opened up the most Leaf-like possibility of all, which is that they for once actually play a good playoff series and they lose anyway to a, to a great team. That's exactly the next step in this evolution of this nightmare, isn't it? And you know, it's it's funny. There are a lot of things I can actually gripe about from the playoffs as well. And there's a lot of things that I think that they do desperately need to address. Um, but in the end, it's not something that I would say this was the definitive issue that they need to do. This is the definitive issue they need to address, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many little things that, um, like even from a management perspective, um, they played well enough to lose and they did. They didn't play well enough to win and they lost. So they had that fifth game. They had that sixth game where they can kind of, sorry, that was my mistake. The sixth game where they could have ended it. And you know, there's something lacking there. And that's been lacking for the past three seasons whenever they were in a situation where they can dominate an opponent, whether that's in the regular season or in the playoffs. So what exactly is that piece that they've been lacking? And is that even something that they can address? Are they going to start playing again on the uh, on the edges there where they're trying to improve incrementally, but in the end, they're still not addressing the main issue that's hampering them from even winning one playoff round? I think the series was as close and as even as it gets. Uh, and like, I get all that argument and it really was a single bounce that would have decided this in the end. It's, it was incredibly leaf-like with the bad luck with the high sticks in, in game six. Uh, that was still gut-wrenching to think back on. But I guess if I were to pick out the real common thread that there is, is the power play, like, and then the depth scoring issue, like for the series. Play's been four, shit every year in the playoffs. Four for 28 on the power play. And they gave up a short again goal as well. So how a team is built on like a lead offensive talent and then so consistently runs out of ideas with a man advantage in the playoffs is something that I've just been ruminating on for, for weeks. Anthony, another thing that I'll give credit to you was clearly and unequivocally predicting that McKayev and Engvall would turn back into pumpkins nothing, in the playoffs. Just nothing oh, from them. Uh, They're both dead in the eyes. No, yeah. like you just look a, in them, you see the nothing. The empty netters make it look better than it was, but like, yeah, yeah they were horrible. They if were you look just... at it, uh, Ross Colton, Nick Paul, Corey Perry, they all scored two or more goals. Look at the Rangers with the kid line. You need a third line that can go out there. Every year, the good teams have a good third line. Tampa last year and the year before with that Gord Coleman, Goudreau line. Like it, every year, you need a good third line. And Mikheyev, once again, I, like I can't wait for him to sign somewhere else for big money. <laughs> all the power to him. Yeah. I'm tired of hearing Same. people like say to me, why don't we put Mikheyev on the second line? Like, cause he's not good offensively. Like he'll get, like, he's good. Like he's fast. It's like Grabner. Like he'll produce enough that people will be like, look, he's good, but he's not actually good. Like he doesn't know what to do. Went from, he couldn't hit anything last year to scoring like a madman this year yeah. to not being able to hit anything again in the playoffs. He finally nuts. realized he's like, if I skate as fast as I can and I fake a shot and pull it backhand, I will score a lot in the regular season. And then Vasilevsky was like, all right, I know you're one move. <laughs> Thanks for coming. That's yeah. it. You know, I was just, I was just thinking about it. AP. The, I think the best two chances in both game six OT to win it in OT and game seven to tie it both fell to Mikheyev. If I recall yeah. coming in on his strong side and he tried to like fake it and pull backhand, like the book was out, but like, he'll, he'll be fine. Like he'll go somewhere and be a respectable player. He's a second, third line tweener. Like, you move them up and on like a Tuesday in January and you're not like, this is awful. 
but then I, I thought that was like the perfect conclusion to the Piquet of like career in Toronto. Is yeah, like, yep. he was a good signing. The, put he himself in a good value. position. Do everything right up until it's time to finish a play. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and honestly, like I've I've been okay in terms of the playoff loss itself. Like it hasn't been an overly like I was disappointed when they lost, obviously, but I wasn't like sick to my stomach. Like when they lost to the Habs, I was sick to my stomach. But I've been a little. I mean, we'll see what happens. Obviously, the offseason has not even started yet as of this recording. I've just found the overall the overall tone to be so poor, like from the organization, largely from the worst thing is I say the fan base, but the conversations that I have on Twitter are miles different than the conversations I have with like people in mm. person, right? Like That's if right. I go to like hockey rank, like I play Ben's league hockey, I play ball hockey. Like I go to those ranks and like, I talk to two different sets of guys. I whatever, go out with friends in public. Those are completely different conversations than the one I have on Twitter. And they're not like the moron, like trade Nylander for two seconds and call it a day. It's just, but they're very different than the the Twitter ones. And all that to say is like, there's so much, there's such a tone of like, they tried hard. So like run it back. And I just, I have a, a real like hold. And that was essentially the message for management. Like, we'll see what they do, obviously. And that, you know, I'll give credit. Like the most important thing that happened in that presser at the end of the season was Dubas basically saying like, we're open to anything that makes sense. I honestly wish that he said it a little bit more forcefully because I do think you need to grab the ears of these guys a little bit. Like, it's not good enough for me to sit, like, I get Tampa's really good. I Like, that could have been a conference final. But, like, you know what? Right now, there's a conference final that's Edmonton and Colorado, and it's terrible. Like, it's awful. Like, that, that should have been a first-round, like, fodder. And I get that they had different paths and stuff like that, but, you know... Like Connor McDavid lit up at LA, like that same guy that he lit up, Philip Deneau shut Matthews right down literally last year. Like Matthews literally did nothing against Philip Deneau and McDavid went out and was like, I'm running a train on this series. I'm the best player here by far. And that's how I'm going to play. So like, I don't necessarily like sit there and just say, am I saying the Leafs would have lost to LA? No, but like, I don't think, I don't know how people can unequivocally sit there and like watch these things and just say, well, they tried hard this year. Like, is that, is that the bar for where this team should be at right now? And, and I just, I don't really like sense that urgency. Like you could almost see like the sigh of relief and Shani and, and Dubas going out there. And it was like, well, at least we don't have to answer for them, like embarrassing themselves this year. Like they put in a good effort and we lost to a good team and it kind of is what it is. Yeah. Like the, I think their point about, you know, how killer instinct was like the, the theme of the, of mm-hmm. uh, the camp last year, about what was going to be different. And, they tried to cite like how they started game seven on the front foot versus the back foot and all that kind of stuff. But to me, maybe there's some fair points and fair credit to be given out there, but I think killer instincts a little bit more than that. I think when the Leafs had an opportunity to step on the throat and open up a two game advantage in the series that would have tipped the margins way more heavily in their favor. Every single time they seem to go out and fall behind by several goals, Mm -hmm. like including the blowout in game four, they put, they also went down, I think it was five, one in game two. So like killer hey, game instincts, two was brutal. I was there. Yeah. It was brutal. Killer instincts. And they went down multiple goals in game six. So killer instinct is not just about starting game seven. Well, or whatever. It's about crushing the other team's will not inviting them back into a series over and over again. I will, I will say though, that like you do have to give what is a, a modern 
dynasty potentially the respect it deserves um yeah but yeah like their bar to me should be like we have like two of maybe the like top 10 players in the in the world right now that are in their prime and we've built them a great supporting cast and we had a goalie who was having a really good year on a cheap contract and our bar should be essentially going to the cup like that like this team was not made to win around and like have a feel good year. Like they were made to make a legitimate cup run. They lost in the first round again, albeit to a borderline dynasty, if not a dynasty, but I like, I don't think that they should sit there. Like it's like, should Florida sit there and be like, well, we won around this year. Like we went all in, we won around and then we got our ass handed to us in round two. Like, should they be happy? Like, why should like, and it's okay to like, it doesn't mean, but it's hard that people have this like conversation where it's like, it's like, well, you can't, you can't just like say that the bar should be higher, but then at the same time, it's like, then you get this reaction where it's like, oh, so you're saying just blow the whole team up and like start from scratch. No, but I'm saying there needs to be urgency from management and owner, like an ownership, like look at the Rangers last year. Like they, they said, screw this. Like we're not as far as we want to be right now. And like there was an urgency in that organization from their, like their, like their run now started in the off season with what they did. And you can argue whether it was his right move to fire him or not, but sometimes you need a, a weird thing like that. Like, I, I don't know how else to explain it. It's a hockey's a weird sport. So that actually is one of the problems that I see with Toronto. And I, <clears throat> so to be perfectly clear, I get the reasons to run it back. I yeah. kind of, I kind of support the view but at the same time i think that there are a lot of things that mask a, a huge amount of flaws in toronto they go as far as matthews takes them if matthews wasn't scoring they weren't going anywhere you could talk about support cast and depth and all that kind of scoring if matthews wasn't doing the scoring the Leafs weren't going anywhere huh. a lot of the Offensive power masked a lot of the goaltending issues. We don't need to go into the goaltending issues. We probably kind of rehashed, went over that plenty of times before the season began, or sorry, while the season was going on before the playoffs. But the playoffs kind of showed that you could kind of run with an average goaltender, but man, Turkin is just starting to tell me, you know, you need something a little yeah. bit more dependable. So now we're in a situation where we're talking about the Leafs running it back. They have no choice but to run it back. They can't move. And I know that I'm going to be very unpopular here, but I thought that Mitch Marner was less effective as the series went on. Tampa Bay found ways to kind of neutralize him, and he was dead in the water by game six or seven. He had a few interesting shifts, but for the most part, he was ineffective. Matthews at that point, again, has to carry the team or else the Leafs go nowhere. There's no scoring from the depth. And the power play, which you could see starting to falter from like – a month before the playoffs began, when all of a sudden it went from this dynamic, we're going to do all these different kind of changes and show a whole bunch of different things to teams to confuse the fuck out of them. And then all of a sudden they went to this static, okay, we're going to start shooting from the, uh, from the flanks again. Well, you become that predictive. And of course, then someone's going to look over the video and go, okay, we're going to have a solution for this. That's why as an aside there, that's why I've never really like, I get why people like where it's like, okay, in the first entry, like Matthews and Marner will be on the half walls. And then the second one, Matthews and Nylander, and then we'll flip them. And in the course of a regular season, I can see why that would screw teams up. Like they just, they're not, they don't have the capacity to pre-scout that enough, but in the playoffs you do. Absolutely. 
like so i don't know how sustainable it is and this is and this isn't like a little sample now this is every year this has happened under keith where it has completely shit itself for the final month or month and change of the regular season and then it's just carried that through the playoffs and i know that they had chances i know that the scoring chance numbers were respectable but i'm sorry like it was just nowhere near as crisp and then it like got to their confidence and you could see it and it, like, it is what it is. It's happened three years in a row now. Like, I don't know how we can watch this and be like, and also low key, the best that it looked for me in the playoffs was when they put Giordano there and they yeah. scored a goal and then they just never did it again. They're like back to the Riley show. And now his seven and a half million dollar contract kicks in. So hidden in what, what, what you said there as well, uh, Gus about like Shazirkin is that the Rangers power play is like over 30% in the power play in the, in the playoffs. Sorry. Um, the other yeah, thing we, that came to mind when you're talking about the scoring behind Matthews thing is sort of like the big elephant in the room, which is the second line is a absolutely. massive problem. Like well, Tavares, Tavares dug deep and he found something and was nearly a hero in that Tampa Bay series after a horrible start. But you have to look at the full sample of 89 games to make a judgment. And we can't sit here and pretend like it's the second, the second line's results at five on five, where they basically worse than treaded water. I think the numbers were 42 to 34. They were outscored at five on five throughout the 82 game season with Marner, sorry, with uh, Tavares and Nylander on the ice. Two of it's, the last three years, I believe they've been outscored at five on five. It's, and... it's, it's bonkers how good the top line was and how good the regular season power play was up until the end. And it totally masked how massive a problem that was. And we saw, and, we saw and it. they had camp blacking out, like all kudos to him. Like, I want to give that guy a shout out. I thought he blacked out a little bit in the playoffs. He had a, like, mm. I don't know how much more you could ask from David camp. I thought he was good. It, like it made up a little bit at the beginning of the, you know, he didn't score in the second half of the series. <laughs> He's David camp, but, but even, but even like all, all season long, they, I think what camp allowed them to do was not only free up Matthews, but Tavares even more in terms of, um, if you looked at like the elite centers and the numbers of like zone starts percentage before this season, Tavares and Matthews were leaned on really heavily all over the ice this year. Mm -hmm. Camp allowed an even softer sort of environment for Tavares and Nylander to take advantage of. And the results were even worse, like the yeah. 42, 34 in terms of getting outscored by eight over a full 82 game season for an $18 million combination. And I think their, I think their possession numbers were like 55% or something like respectable, yeah, so but, but like, I think people are just fooled by that number. I think they got pillow softs matchups and starts, you know, I think they were just literally handed situations. They were basically at times treated like what the Leafs did with friggin' Bozak and JVR on the third line, like years ago for again, like $18 million. And the tough thing is, um, I hate having these conversations about this guy because I actually don't mind him as a player. And it's like, it's basically hit like Jake Gardner levels where you can, you basically like, it's like one side or the other. You can't just have a, like a normal conversation about Nylander, like sad. Like, I don't think that he is the reason that like, I don't think it's on him. Like, I just don't think that they mesh. The sad part is I don't think you can move to Varus. And so then it's like, but then do you compound things? If you're going to sit there and say, maybe we have to get a different kind of player that fits him stylistically. And by him, I mean Tavares, like maybe we have to get him a different winger and like, it's shitty. Cause then you sit there and go, well, we're going to, we're going to move a good player to probably bring in like an objectively worse player, but who's maybe a better fit on that yep. second line. Like I would love to 
like just find Nylander a better center. I think he would be like Vincent Trocek's on the market who can fly and he's a good scorer. I bet you they would be great together, but like, I don't see how that would work financially. I look at the forward group and I think there are like a total two pairs that make a lot of sense, which are Matthews Marner and Volkamp. And the rest is open to ideas. And even then like Matthews Marner as a pair might be one where you have to ask them to drive their own lines more frequently than Keith did this season. Yeah. Or you go that direction and say, Nylander, you play with Matthews and like Marner, you just carry JT for the year. So I, I actually don't think it's a matter of line combos at this point in time. And I'm going to be a little bit more specific about this. Three seasons ago, Boston Bruins, um, Boston collapsed. Toronto had no, no way to penetrate against Columbus. Columbus did the same thing. They collapsed. There was nothing there. No response from Keefe. Montreal did the very same thing. Everybody collapsed. No penetration from Toronto. You can't have that going into the same playoffs this year. Tampa Bay started to collapse. No response from Keefe. That's a problem. Marner struggled as the series went up. No response from Keith. Let's just keep running out Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner. And I get you're playing the percentages there, but these are the playoffs and you're trying to find an edge. No edge. It's not November. You can't just ride it out. Your power play sucked ass. You did nothing. The power kill, which was incredible during the regular season, was completely obliterated after game one. So that offensive aspect that you put onto your penalty kill was completely disregarded because the out, John Cooper outcoached you. And throughout the series, as soon as I keep seeing all the positives that Toronto did in the regular season to make them such a good team, they systematically were just disbanded one by one by one by one. You can't have no response and you can't have your strategy and systems dismantled that easily and expect to be competitive. So I want to give Keith the benefit of the doubt, but there is nothing there that's kind of showed me that he's able to take the reins and say, my team is struggling a little bit. I can inject idea A, B, and C to try to help them. It's nothing like that. It's keep running Matthews, keep running Matthews, keep running Matthews, and hope that something kind of works out that way. We can't kind of can sit here and say it's all about Tavares and Nylander and all of that. And you guys are absolutely right. But coaching, I think, is the biggest issue that we have at this point in time, and that's not going to be addressed. We talked about, like, special teams, and you talked about failure to break teams down. I don't think in the third period of Game 7, the Leafs created much at all or really got inside enough to kind of similar to the way Game 7 kind of just petered out against Montreal. It was a really sort of familiar feeling. Almost uh, a year before that. It's the yeah. same fucking shit over and over and over. My also, low-key, they were healthy this year. Like no one, t- I haven't, that hasn't really been spoken about much. Like they were healthy. I don't know how much more you could have possibly hoped for from Jake Muzzin, but that was about the max. Yeah. Like he was pretty good and he actually played the whole series, which was a shocker. Like no one really got hurt. Braden Point got hurt. I know that there'll, this'll be the, the point. Like I just, I wouldn't really feel the need to address this, but I know we will just get roasted in the comments if we don't. Like people are going to say the refereeing, the officiating in the series, like, I, like to me, like I'll take it, I'll take it to my grave. Like that, that was a penalty on Justin Hole. Like, I'm sorry. Like he, he blatantly skated down the middle of the zone and like fully ran a pick on the guy that was covering the guy who had the puck. Like it's, it's a 10 out of 10 penalty. The second that it happened. And like, I don't know if I just live in a different planet. The second that I saw it before the puck went in, I was like, that's a penalty. And then 
like I heard the whistle go. Like I I never accelerated it for a single yeah, second. And so I don't know if people were just too fired up because they were celebrating. And I know people will say like that shit happens all the time, blah, blah, blah. Like it doesn't though, not to that level. Like the things that we want refs to call are things that take away scoring chances or things that create scoring chances. And that created a scoring chance. Like I don't want to get into a whole debate on that. I just, I don't know. I didn't think that that was the reason they lost the series. I definitely think Keith made a mistake by saying um, his comment about like a violent series at the start and basically putting refs on high alert. And there was a, Alec, you probably remember the entire quote off the top of your head, but like after, I think it was after game one where, or maybe game two where Cooper said something like he called it out in his post game where he was just like, well, you have comments from the other coach or whatever, making comments like it's a violent series. And you could tell there was an undertone to it. Like this fucking guy, like actually like blared out the refs and now they're calling everything. And you could tell he was pissed. Like it was, it was a basically a shot at Keith for saying like, shut your mouth next time and don't talk about the refs. The, in Keith's defense, to some degree, I think there was some sort of league-wide mandate at play because you saw it across every single For series. For the first, like, four or five games of every series, and then yeah. in, like, game six and seven, I was like, oh, no, we're back. Every, like, a like, lot of tick-tack calls across the league. So I don't know if it was specific to Keith's quote to put them high alert, but maybe it's some sort of secondary factor. Do you but- also just find that um, – I don't know if it's like new school fans, especially for like the online conversations that you see or whatnot. But like, I like, I remember watching like the Pat Quinn Leafs and stuff and like, they didn't sit there and like care about ticky tack calls and whatever. Like they purposely, like they bent the rules as far as one could possibly bend the rules. Like Shane Corson on Alexei Yashin was a literal abomination. Like anyone that can like remember that, like he was basically a backpack for Yashin that entire series like of the highest order. Like I defy anyone to go watch like actual games from like that time. And like, and like, do you think the Leafs care? Like, I remember fans complaining about how bullshit the Leafs played for literally years. And they were like, we don't give a shit. And like the fans here loved it. They reveled in it. They're like, absolutely. Like this is, and I just feel like it's one of those things where like either your team does it and you're like, great. Like, I'm glad that they push the rule book as far as they can, or they don't. And you just whine about it. And like history has generally shown us the teams that, and whether you can say right or wrong, but history has basically showed us like the teams that like play with the rules as much as you can usually come out ahead. The teams that whine about it usually just get in their own head and it just does not go the way that they want it to at the end of the day. Like at some point you have to kind of embrace it. And big picture, like what did the Leafs who I think had a legitimate gripe all season, like how could we possibly be constantly bottom of the league in drawing penalties? Yeah, so consistently uh, in the playoffs, in the seven game playoff series, they had 28 or 29 power play opportunities. So yeah, and it sucked. Like that's, it was terrible. that's what per game, like it's in, it's a lot of power play opportunities uh, for the playoffs. So like, yeah, I don't sure how much you can really complain about it in the end. If you took advantage of opportunities on special teams, it's not really a, a conversation. Yeah. In the end, you can blame power plays all we want. They had seven games to put the series away. So between all the refereeing between both teams, because it wasn't just the Leafs that were getting chintzy little calls, I, I acknowledge that the refing was absolute horse-ass shit, but you had seven games to put this away. And you can't blame the refs and saying it's the refereeing that was the reason or the main reason why they lost that series, because it isn't. When you're talking about 
breaking not breaking teams down and keeps accountability in it, Gus. This is something I want you and Anthony to speak to because you're better at the tactics of the understand the tactics of the game than I am. But I've always been confused, at least when I've seen the sports lot sports logic numbers and then watch the team play, why they don't generate more five on five rush offense. Because we can talk about their failure to break teams down in zone uh, against like committed five man defenses with good goaltenders behind them and the struggles they've had in that respect. But, you know, the Riley goal scored in game seven off the rush. Nylander had a bunch of breakaways, but the numbers all year were strangely mediocre to poor. Um, they generated a ton of like a lot of the shorthanded, a lot of the rush chances that come back to me by memory were shorthanded uh, as well, but not as much five on five. As a result, I think they had the puck a lot, but it's a lot of cycle time where they're trying to break down, you know, committed five-man defensive units, really good experienced playoff hardened teams like Tampa Bay. That's hard to do. What do you agree with that? And do you think that's some sort of byproduct of the way Keith has them playing? I think they play a very methodical style. I think it takes away from look off, off the rush chances are usually caused by chaos. You don't just like break through a neutral zone chap and get like a magical three on two and the Leafs play a very slow game. Like they do like they it's regroup. It's tight tape to tape breakout pass. Like a lot of it's really clean. And I think there's a huge part of the game that should be, attributed to that but if you watch teams off the rush like what are they doing like they're chasing pucks they're putting pucks out to center and they're getting after it like you referenced that you see a lot of them shorthanded what's shorthanded they're just chipping the puck off the glass and going to get it and unleashing their their speed but they never they don't really do that five on five and like the Leafs have talented defensemen like they're not um unable to move the puck but like unless I don't know you have like prime like Sergei Zuboff you're not like ripping through neutral zones for like two on one and breakaways, like from like a blue line breakout. And like the other thing I'll say to that too. And I don't know if this was a product of who he was playing with and maybe a way for them to like keep those tight breakouts, but then also create a little bit more off the rush is like their defense has really stopped joining the rush, right? Like we don't see Riley like spring up there the way that we used to. I'm not even going to talk about guys like, you know, Jake Muzzin and Justin Hole, Cause like, Holy cow, if we had to watch those guys skate up, I would be beside myself, but like TJ Brody's capable and he doesn't really do it ever. Timothy Lilligren is a hundred percent capable. And, you know, um, I don't want to say they're being uh, like red lighted, but they're definitely not being encouraged. Like Lilligren playing third pairing minutes should just be, ripping up ice every single chance i would say sandine too i don't think he's fast enough personally but you know if you're just gonna have tight slow methodical breakouts and you're not gonna activate your defense how are you gonna get odd man rushes generally speaking and you're playing directly into it tampa's hands to some degree and you know i thought in the first game it was in the in game one i was like this leafs team they're a lot faster than tampa like they're gonna really stress them and then faster. Tampa Bay just kind of bottled them up. <laughs> it was like, yeah. where's that speed and skill advantage that I thought I saw in the first game? So what I kind of think happened was, to Anthony's point, the breakouts were tight because they all came back and it was a five-man unit that was coming out. Um, and they are absolutely, chaos is the word. They are agents of chaos. So they are the ones that will, even in a transition where everybody's just kind of coming back, 
the Leafs kind of slow things down, not necessarily um, like literally speed and slow things down, but they slow down their momentum to the degree that they don't allow the other team to be able to set up. So that little chaotic point is how they generate scoring chances and they take advantage of that. When they're in the offensive zone, they keep that third player right at the top of uh, uh, right by the blue line there. So that gives them support down the bundle and support defensively. They're a lot more comfortable, even if they're not generating scoring chances, but just having more zone time in the offensive zone. So, through those two little things, I think you're going to see a depressed rate of scoring off of a rush. Having said all that, towards the end of the season, the Leafs opened up a lot. They were stretching their wingers out. They were starting to use stretch plays. They were throwing pucks out into the center, and they were having a lot of back end coming up. So a lot of that defensive support that was kind of bottling up in the neut- in the offensive zone. But they were kind of experimenting with some of that. So they now they burned. go back. They got burned on that too, right? On the the goal that Hole got unfairly hung for? Basically any goal that he's ever on the ice for. <laughs> <laughs> but I know the one that you're talking about, Alec. And then yeah. towards game six and game seven, they went back to that kind of methodical five-on-five, five, but Tampa just collapsed. And then again, we're back to the same point of, you know, no penetration. And they had lots of offensive zone time, and yeah, thanks for coming and all of that, but they weren't generating a lot of good stuff. Like, they were just skating and being agents of chaos and doing nothing with it. And I think that's the worst thing that, that people do. I know we just talked about it briefly before we started recording, but the, and by worst thing, I mean, in game seven to me looked very much like the Montreal Canadian series. It looked much like the mm-hmm. Columbus series where they were just like, we're going to, we're going to hang back. We're not going to give them anything. They're going to have to come inside on us. If, if they want to do well, all of a sudden it's like the goalie looks good, uh, you know, a uh, little causation and correlation conversation should occur there maybe. And people it's like, Oh, Vasilevsky played sick. I'm like, well, did he like how many good saves did Vasilevsky really make in game seven? I like, I remember very few where I was like, wow, like this guy's like actually like blacking out or anything like that. He was good, but he wasn't like crazy. No. To be and honest, I, I felt the same about Carey Price the whole way through. Yeah, like he maybe had had one good save on on Jason Spezza, and I think he had one nice glove one on Marner. But like, I don't, I'd never watched that series and was like, holy shit, like Price is going like full, like Shesterkin right now or something. No, the Leafs imploded there. They imploded again in Game Seven here too, but they absolutely imploded against the Habs. And all that to say is, I don't. That's part of why I'm disappointed in the like we played Tampa tough conversation because I'm like, you have no idea how it would have gone against any other team. You don't like, you can't like you, I think there's, you know, Tampa is not going to play like that against the Leafs because you know what? Tampa is the back-to-back Stanley cup champion. They're not going to bow down to anyone and sit there and say, let's trap it up and game them up. Nor should they do that. They're again, like they've built that credibility, but I think a lot of other teams would have said, we're literally just going to hang back and wait for these guys to implode and get frustrated. And we know that they're not going to fight to get on the inside. I think that would have been, the recipe for a lot of teams. I don't know if the Leafs would have handled it well or not. I would like to think that they would have. I thought they had a really good team. I think Dubas did the best job that he could have short of like moving a core player. Like he said, he wanted to give them another shot. To me, he did that this year. Yeah, I agree with that. Like he couldn't have done anything more. Basically, I love the Giordano ad. I thought he was awesome. I thought he elevated Lilgren's game. I think he made him a better player. 
the fact that they've signed him to a sweetheart deal moving forward, I think that's one of his best trades since he's been here to get him for what they got him and then to sign him that cheap much longer. Like you can play him with Sandine. You can play him with Lilligren. If, if, and, or when Muzzin gets hurt, if he's on the team next year, he can move up the lineup and be really good. But I just sit them like, you can't just sit there and say Tampa beat the Leafs and now they're in the conference finals. Maybe they'll go to the Stanley cup final. Maybe they'll win it and be like, well, shit, if the Leafs just won, that would have been them. Like it does not work. Your point about Dubas is I think uh pass he gets definitely resonates. Like I think if you're looking at sort of the things he needs to hit on to make the model he's trying to make work work, it's one is getting a ton of value out of you know a limited draft capital, which I think the Matthew Nyes pick looks as good as it can look one year out. It's too early to make declarations one way or the other, but and then you're thinking he also has to Nick Robertson says hi. Yeah, fair enough. Who I think will be good, but like Pete, that's why people need to cool the breaks after one season. For sure, after for sure. I, to- I I totally get that. But as as much as we can evaluate one year out, that looks really good. Yeah. The, so the other thing that you need to hit on is scout like extremely efficient in the FA market, which I think he did with Bunting and Camp. Uh, he took a calculated risk on Richie, and I think he erased the problem pretty effectively. So fair enough. The geo acquisition, I think, pretty much with with the uh, with the sweetheart deal in mind, in hindsight, like looks incredible. Um, like to me, that's kind of like where it tips it over from. Like they would have had a second straight first round exit where they forfeit as the total haul. I think it's if I can add up the picks correctly, a first, two seconds, a third, and a fourth. If they had had nothing to show for that, that's the kind of thing where it turns a team trying to get over the hump to a team that can't even reach the hump mm-hmm. uh, if you're not careful, but signing him to like a two year sweetheart deal mitigates a lot of that. Um, I don't know. I did. I think the Mirazic thing is just the only thing you can really pin on him. And, and even then I think the process wasn't all that bad there, even if the outcome was kind of like worst case Ontario. It, they brought in literally the guy that coached the system that he played in in Carolina and had success in and it's goalies. It's goalies. Like I like, I don't know. I, I think Mrazek could be good. I've, I thought that he had flashes, especially early on. He just couldn't stay healthy and you kind of watched it. And it was just like, this sucks. Like, I, I don't know what else to say. Like you, you're watching him play and he showed good moments and Hey, if you can't stay healthy, like that's what, ha- that's why I know Gus tweeted about this and him and I have messaged about this guy a little bit as well. Like I just look at Andre Cache and I like the guy I do. I genuinely do. But like, if you can't stay healthy, it just, it screws your lineup up, man. Like Absolutely. you're constantly moving. He was brutal mm-hmm. in the playoffs and I don't blame him. He was hurt and it was a bad injury, but like, that's what happens. And with him, that's every year. And you that's why to, I wouldn't qualify him. Yeah. You have to put him in, in a position because, you know, even if you say that, yeah, he's good enough to play in your top six, if he's not there in a time when you need him, you have to adjust your roster. And now you're putting players in positions where they're not ready to be uh, productive. So Kashi playing on that fourth line was just a waste of a roster spot. You could have gotten something out in the free agent market closer to the deadline. You just handcuffed yourself. And again, I kind of agree. I, actually, I shouldn't say kind of absolutely agree. I think that Dubas had uh, did an admirable job for what he had to work with going into the season with all of the things that you mentioned, Anthony, give everybody a second chance. Let's see how we can kind of build and blah, blah, blah. And, that, and that's all fine and good. But these little decisions are the things that are going to be 
kind of picked on when the trade deadline comes around. Yeah, you get you brought in Kasha again, but now it's the same thing. Once again, he's fragile enough that he's not consistently in your lineup, and now you have to find a solution for something else. So that they have to make a they have to make these decisions very smart. They have to be methodical about it. And that's the first one that I would just say, forget it, walk away, let somebody else deal with it. But what's interesting is that like this offseason, when you look at it, the bottom six, now that Spets is gone and Mikheyev is likely gone, it's a, more of an open slate. Like you can yeah. sort of rebuild around camp and Engvall and then start to piece together the rest from what you like internally. And I know this will be like unpopular, but I'm quite happy that Spets are retired. I like the guy. Great, great career. I thought he was as admirable as someone could have been coming here for like the caliber of player he was to what he is now and embracing his role and all that. I think it opens up a whole host of possibilities. He was good in the Montreal series, but I think generally speaking, like down the stretch of each season and through playoffs, I thought he was essentially what I thought he was going to be from the very beginning, which was he basically made no impact and it was a square square hole round peg situation. Um, he just, he's not like a fourth liner. Like he's not what you want out of a fourth liner. I think, I think at times we saw them try to shift to a more traditional type fourth line, but it was always, you know, no such thing as a halfway crook. Like either you're going to do it or you don't, but that's a made it an awkward fit. Um, you know, no offense to the guy. I think he's great points for being Italian, of course, but <laughs> I just like, I think, I think it's a good thing for them to kind of, Look, they got into this with Joe Thornton too a little bit where it's like they sign these vets and that's my issue with the two years for Simmons because he signed for next year and people sit there and they're like, well, you can you can bury him in the A, but they're not going to do that. We know that they don't have the stones to make those kinds of decisions. That's my issue with them. Whereas Giordano can actually play. Like he's actually good still. I don't know if he'll be good year two, but he's actually good this year. And I would eat shit on the second year to get him at the cap hit that they are for this year for a team that's in a tight cap situation, uh, you know, then you look at filling out the roster. Like, do you, I don't want to say, do you gift him a spot? Cause I would never do that, but would you have Nick Robertson on the inside track of being on the team next year? Like day one. I don't really think they have a choice, but to at least give him that so spot. It's his position to lose, but you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's a lock. He barely played, and then eventually they were like, oh, shit, we might as well play him with Tavares and save face for a few, like a week. Mm-hmm. It was a waste of time. Like, keep a guy in the A. Like, go learn how to play the game. But I thought that he showed that he could. Like, in the A, like, he actually did really well this year, enough that I'd, I'd be like, okay. And also, like, I think – we don't talk about it much here, but I think the Marlies coach is a disaster. Um, I'm not going to fully get into that on this podcast because I would need, like, multiple hours – to explain why I think he's a disaster. Um, that team didn't make the playoffs this year. I think he's been pretty brutal. If you've looked at pretty much his entire arc there to this point, I think there's actually just a win to be like, get away and like, go, you can say whatever you want about Keith, but get away from this guy and go under Keith. And that's all I'm going to say there. Alec, I know I cut you off like six times. No, it's all good. I was trying to cut you off. So, <laughs> uh, I was going to like, there's going to be like Nylander is going to get batted around constantly as the avenue to open up flexibility, but quietly, I know that this is like old hat on this podcast, but Alex Kerfoot, like, I suppose he, he gave them like 51 point regular season plus PK duties. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. really my favorite player on the team. There's no one yeah. I love more than Alex Kerfoot on the Toronto Maple Leafs. If you throw out his shorthand goal in garbage time in game two to make it 5-2 or whatever it was. I think it was 5-3, but yeah. The nice setup by that that the TJ Brody basically made the goal. Um, yeah. He had, like, outside of that, he had one assist in seven games. And then if you extend the sample, uh, I looked at this right after the series ended, so I'm sorry if it's not exactly right, but if you extend, extend the sample, I think it's, one goal at five on five in his entire playoff career, which I think is 38 games. Uh, I think you can pretty clearly squeeze more out of that three and a half million dollar allotment. Uh, you mentioned Nick Robertson, but I think a guy like Alex Steves didn't get yeah. the fair he- shake he probably deserved either. Uh, I know Jory Anderson's kind of. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about Joey Anderson. Point. Don't even dare. There's just no world. But Alex Steves, absolutely. And then Curtis Douglas is kind of interesting too, but yeah, I think it's, it's you know, um, you know why they like Alex Kerfoot, right? Like, I don't think we talk about this much. Like, do, like, do people understand why they like him? Like why the coaching staff does it's because I think he's one of the only guys that doesn't complain. Like Keith rep makes like, like veiled references to it all the time. It's like, I can put him on the third line. I can put him on the fourth line. I don't have to put him on the power play. He'll penalty kill. (laughs) Right. And like, he's basically saying like, I can move this guy wherever I want and he won't say a word and he'll give me his best. And I don't think a lot of other guys are like that. And like, that's not unique to the Leafs. That's the entire league. A lot of guys would be like, absolutely not. Like he had 51 points this year. He did not play on the power play. Like he had to watch guys get called up from the A. He had to watch guys get hurt and then come back and then get plump spots. He got to watch Mikheyev, who I'm sure everyone knew on the team that he complained, get shoehorned onto the power play. And then Kerfoot went up there and threw up 51 points. He was a staple on the penalty kill, and he did not touch the power play all year. And that's why they like him. He doesn't, and I get that. Like if anyone's ever managed staff, if anyone's ever taught a classroom, if anyone's ever coached a team, there's always a few guys that just shut up and play and everyone has time for them because you're like, I don't need to deal with this is one less headache. And I totally appreciate that. But for three and a half million dollars, you can't drive a line. I'm not exactly, you're, you're probably a left winger. You're, you know, we talk about the 51 and not playing on the power play. Like he's also probably not very good on the power play. There's a reason, right? Yeah, yeah. there's a full reason. But like most guys would sit there at 51 points and be like, how the hell am I not on the power play? Like they would suck out. They would first, a lot of guys would suck out in this league. A lot of them would. And he didn't. So kudos to him. But like, it's an, he's, he, I've always found that one funny, especially this year. This was the year that I think Keith has been the most vocal. He said it, Alec would know, like he said it a number of times where he would just talk about how he could move him around. And like, every time he did, I was interpreting it as like, this is, this guy will just shut his mouth and do whatever he says. Yeah. He loved citing that. And he also cited that. Uh, Matthews and Marner get along with him really well off the ice and get excited when they talk about playing with him. Which <laughs> like, that, that gives you a lot of solace, Anthony. Harvard yeah, boy so. knows, though, right? Harvard nah. boy knows exactly what it is. Paid, <laughs> so he ain't dumb. That that would be part of the reason I would move him too, just to be like tired of watching you guys get excited to play with him. Like, <laughs> and also just to like break them up a little bit more. Like we talked about that a little bit, like, I know we can like line configurations. Like, was this the reason they lost? Like, no, but like, I, I, again, like, I think that they would still benefit from splitting them up a little bit more. I think Nylander Matthews is fully capable. I know he tried it in the early part of the season 
I think it was a completely unfair time to like make a full decision because Matthews was just returning from the wrist injury and missing training camp. And then like, they basically got thrown together and Keith was like, Nope, it's shit after two weeks. And I was like, well, Matthews looked terrible. And I don't think Matthews looked terrible because he was playing with Nylander. I just think Matthews looked terrible because he wasn't healthy yet. And he wasn't ripping the puck the way that he could. Like we've literally seen those guys play seasons together and look really good. So that doesn't make any sense to me. I, you know, I think, so then you look at it and it's like, okay, Robertson probably is on the team. I think Steve's could give it a run. Like the defense is, you could argue the defense is set right now on paper. I'm expecting someone to move. I would expect that myself. Something's got to break there. You can't come back with that same blue line and think that it's competitive enough. You know, the other problem too here is they still haven't addressed goaltending. I really don't know what the hell they're going to do with Jack Campbell. He's not my $5 million goalie. He's not even my $3 million goalie at this point. And I'll give him the credit that he deserved that he played very well in the playoffs, but you can't go into the playoffs with the shit that he did during the regular season and think that you're going to be competitive game in game out and give Campbell his credit. But there were also points there where you're thinking, man, if he just makes this save, they got to move into a different direction with their goaltending. Morazic has been a disaster, you know, even structurally and technically, I'm not very good with goaltender evaluation and I purposely stay away from that. But whenever I talk to a goaltender coach or a skills development coach, it's like, he's never square. He's always a little off. He's always a little low to the ground or he's just off balance. Like there's always something that's doing laps in the crease, man. He's just swimming in there. It's just just, laps. At some point in time, you have to make that guess. And I guess, through all the public stuff that we're seeing that they're either trying to trade him or they're going to buy him out. I think at this point in time, you just take your loss, try to get rid of him, and try to move on from that. But that means that the Leafs are going to have a brand new goaltender next year. That's maybe the first question that we might have to address. Everything comes from that because they need a guy like that. You need like a dude in that, like it can't, you can't just say that. And that's the thing. Like I'll, I'll always take this to my grave. Like the cap just, I love a super team. I love watching a sick team. Like there's no team that comes into Toronto in the regular season. Like there's games where I'll be like, Oh, sick. Like it'll be a a better game, but there's no team that comes into Toronto where I'm sitting there. Like, this is crazy. Like this is like 2016 golden state warriors. Like this is like, you know, 2003, like Detroit red wings and their salary cap is like lapping the field or like, you know, some like crazy ass baseball team or whatever the Dodgers Like, I just like shrug. I'm like, well, like, you know, this team is pretty good, but like, so are the Leafs. And like, that's the parody that the league wanted. But in saying, and the whole point I'm bringing that up is even like when the cap got introduced and then teams outsmarted it with the back diving deals, there were some sick teams like Chicago and LA back in the day were unbelievable teams. And like, you don't get that. So like Chicago could sit there before with like anti Niemi and be like, yeah, like we're that much better than the rest of the, the league on paper. Like our rosters are so much better than the rest of the league that we can go in there with this chump and feel like you can't do that now. Like you, can't you, can't. Take, you can't take anything for granted. And I think the it's probably the most uncertain it's been in that in Dubas's entire time here. And this is probably his potentially his biggest decision as a GM in a as a GM in a while, when you consider, you know, Huge. Campbell's pending UFA situation and Mrazic's first year in Toronto. Like, if goaltending <laughs> torpedoes their next season, it's his job. Like, it's over. Oh yeah, yeah. Without and the situation, a the situation reminds me of like Gus 
laid out why he doesn't like Campbell, but even if you did, like it reminds me a bit of Hyman's situation in that if the Leafs love him and Campbell loves him back, the timing of the relationship <laughs> still isn't in their favor because it's his it's his opportunity to get paid after years and years of making chicken scratch, relatively speaking, and the Leafs are up against it. So it led to a divorce in Hyman's case. I don't, I don't, I don't see anybody else. That's my problem. Like Vili Huso, I guess, is a legitimate option. I'd have to like watch him a little bit more. Like I've watched actually quite a few St. Louis games because I actually have a lot of time for them. I think they're a really good team and kudos to them. They're the only team to beat Colorado so far in the playoffs. But like, that's basically like, I don't know. You look through, like there's maybe some like interesting names, sort of. I think like Eric Comrie's in there and like a few others, but holy shit. Like if you pin your hopes on a guy like that and it goes up in flames, I mean, Carolina pinned their, like they got rid of two capable goalies on their system last year. They brought in two new ones. Freddie blacked out and had like maybe the season of his life. Then he pulled a Freddie down the stretch and <laughs> played all in the playoffs and they lost in the second round again. Like it was the same shit. Like, and you just kind of watch just like hard shoulder shrug and you're like, well, that's like, that was the, and like, I read the Carolina, like, um, post games and stuff from their beat writers. It was like that decision blew up in their face. And like, that was after Freddie had like maybe the best season of his life. And like Ranta, I don't think was the reason they lost. Like, I don't know, like Sebastian Ajo could have played a lot better amongst like Martin. Uh, there were others yeah. could have mixed in like one hard stride that entire playoff. So on, so forth. But like, you know, and that's the Carolina market. Like you don't, you don't get that here in Toronto. Like Darcy Comfort has been terrible. I think like he had a good stretch in, in Colorado in like January, February, where he was, he went on like a heater. And I think he like led the league in wins over like a two month stretch or was close to it. But like, he looks brutal in the playoffs. Like, like Frank who's went in there and it was like, yeah, this is basically the same guy. <laughs> so I think that the scenario, and I'm going to just make a guess here. This is what I think is going to happen. Campbell can ask for 5 million in term. If any team is willing to give him that, all the power to them. But I don't even think that any team seeing what happened over the course of this season yeah. is willing to give that kind of money and that kind of term to that goaltender. So they go out, they test the market, they find that they're just not going to get that kind of money. They come back with the offer that they probably get as the best offer in the market. They give it to Dubas and say, do better. And if Dubas tries to do better, they sign him for a year, maybe two. But you can't go long term. You can't go with big money. And that's the only way that I can see Jack Campbell coming back into Toronto. So the second part I want to address, just because we don't see what goaltending is available, doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't a shitload of stuff that's happening in the background that will cost you an asset. But if you're a good GM, you make that happen. So this is where Dubas' situation is kind of hinging on a good goaltender. If you have to make the move in order to make that work, you have to make that work. So figure it out. That's why you got a research and development department. That's why you are able to kind of maneuver your way through whatever they've had to do over the last couple of years. But you've seen it. You can't go back in there with just a Jack Campbell. They need to have something completely solid or else they just start to fall apart. And when they fall apart, because the goaltending is just, you can't win 6-5. You got to win 2-1, 3-1, And they just can't do that with that kind of insecurity in the, uh, in the crease. Actually, I just want to end on this one note. I think it was Jack Hahn that was actually making the point where you see how the Rangers are allowed to kind of be a little bit more risk oriented they can take those higher risks because they know they have a little bit of an insurance policy in Shesterkin and net 
when you have that kind of a reliability, it offers you the, the, the ability to be more creative and take those higher risks. The Leafs do not. So they have to tighten up and tighten up and tighten up. So whenever they make a mistake, it's in the back of their net. So you, the point is to try to open up your offense and open up and try to make the sky the limit, not tighten and tighten and tighten and tighten because of a liability that you have in your crease. So the way I kind of look at it, like heading into the offseason, so we talked about goalie right now. Technically, they have like eight NHL defensemen under contract right now. I think not only do they need to move money on a guy, I think they need to like seriously see if they can add another guy, like a, like a, another legit top four defenseman. I'd love to get Riley a partner. I mean, we didn't talk about it much, but like he played the entire playoffs with Ilya Bushkin. Like, what are we doing here? Yeah, like, that it, was problematic. That all kinds of problems. I'd love to see Riley unleashed a little bit more. I understand the season that he had offensively. I think people also need to look around at what happened in the league this year where like basically everybody in the league blacked out offensively and maybe like pump the brakes a little bit on like a certain individual doing this, that, or whatever, because the entire league had that year, which so it, it whatever it was, it wasn't like a unique thing. And, but other than that, like, I, I think the defense is, I mean, generally speaking, the defense is in fine shape. I don't trust Muzzin at this point. Unfortunately, I love the guy. Like he was my son or mm. a brother great player one of the only guys they've had on this team in years that actually hits and doesn't shy away from big moments i have a lot of time for him i just unfortunately i don't know how you can trust him that's just the reality but i think lilligren is a guy if i was them i would seriously consider sending him a long-term offer and trying to get him to a similar contract the way nashville did with ryan ellis back in the day i wouldn't do that with sandine but i would 100 percent try with lilligren and see how he takes it. I think he actually is good enough. Like, I think he's good. I think he's a set, probably a second pairing guy, but a good one. And like, does a little bit of everything. I also think he's a horse. Like we don't talk about it much. Like he's a strong dude. Like saw a lot of guys try to run him this year and they just bounced off him. And then they eventually stopped. I was like, this guy's like, he's small, but like, he's a fire hydrant. I'm a big fan. Lilligren was the answer to the question that I had about the Leafs blue line going into the season, not this season, the season before. Yeah. And he was the one that came out and said, you know what? I can have this spot. Yeah. So that, that saves the management decision continuing. And, and I know people hate hole. And I know Alec and I were talking about this last week. Um, but to me, I think he's a prime candidate for like a bounce back season, quote unquote. He was, he had that virus and was sick last off season and then lost like 20 pounds and came into camp and looked like shit. And at points he almost looked a little comfortable, like he had made it. And I think he had to like eat a little shit this year and a little bit of humble pie, but then also just like that combination with like, hopefully a healthy off season from him. And like, he's a guy, like people don't really talk about him much. Like he was a second round pick. Like he was a highly touted prospect. Like this isn't some bum they found off the street. Like he's clearly had some like issues in terms of like keeping his play and level of play up. Like, I, like he, they, was, like, they didn't find him like toiling and like, like he was a guy that fell out of favor and then like started to finally reach his potential. All that to say is I think he could put in a good off season and come back and be a respectable player. I think a motivated hole would be quite a player. He's pretty nonchalant as a dude. I've had a number of people tell me that like know him personally, like he's just a very casual, like nothing really phases him guy. 
I think if you, that's the kind of guy, or if you get him motivated, like he's still, like he wasn't a good skater this year, but he was before this year. He's six, three, he's good on the PK. He's a like, UFA at the end of the year too. So yeah, there's a motivational factor there. One of my absolute favorites. I love a good contract year. So like bottom four, I think they're fine and can like move pieces around and in fact, clear some money with one of these guys. I would love to see them bring in a better partner for Riley. It doesn't have to be like a stud. It just has to be a guy who's a better fit. And like, you know, that we're not like watching in the playoffs, like, and saying like, wow, that guy's playing with Riley all for seven games. Like that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Which is what I did. Like the whole series, I was like, this is wild. Like, I can't believe this guy's his partner right now. Like, like you look at like Eric, like Cernak and like, I'm, and like Tampa, like he's, he, like, he's really good. Like he's a really good player, right? Like that's who Victor Hedman's playing with. Like I Victor Hedman, maybe the best team man in the league is playing with him. I think Anthony might like Eric Cernak. He's man. He's good. I messaged you about him before. I was like, I felt the same way the last few years watching him in the playoffs. I was like, man, like this guy can play. Like he's, he's a good player. He does a lot of good things out there. I was he's waiting good. for you to say Ian Cole's name. Anthony. I like him as a depth guy, but I like the least depth guys. I, but I do like Ian Cole. I think Colorado missed him. I think they learned that lesson. They basically cited it after um, their, their second round exit last year. Right. And like, look at them this year. Like I, we talked about Sam Gerard. Like I, like I remember we had Scotty Bowman on the podcast and he was just like, I have no idea why that guy's on that team basically. And like, do you think they miss him right now? Like, do you think they're playing like the fast, like one of the fastest, most skilled teams in the league. And they're like, Oh shit. Like we wish we had Sam Gerard while we like curb stomp them and like probably sweep them. Like, do you think they care? No. Like, Oh, what are we going to do with our small second hand second power play unit quarterback? Like how will we survive? <laughs> Pointless. That's no. the point though, right? You adjust with all these guys in and out of the lineup. And yeah. Instead they get Josh Manson. They're like, you're going to play the third most among all of our D-man. Yeah. Thanks and, for coming. Well, I want to wrap up with forwards because forwards I think is, is questionable, right? Like we talked, like you could argue, okay, they can bring back the top line. I won't argue it. Sure. Great top line. And then it's like, what the hell's happening on the second line? They need Are a they, middle six left winger that can work with Tavares, I think, better than McKayev or Kerfoot. But then and, that gives them the option to like put Nylander to control his own line. Yeah. I'd say or, they move Tavares to the wing and try to find the legit second line center. If there's something available in that situation, you got to take advantage of that because Tavares is going to be a liability. Anthony, you knew yeah. at the moment that they signed him, this moment was coming. Yeah. And it's here now. He's not yeah. John Tavares, $10 million impact player. He's John Tavares, the 10 million albatross. So they need to do something to kind of change that up and they got to move him to the wing. He's no longer an effective center. Yeah. I think people are a little, um, they just look at the point totals and they're like, actually he's been sick. Like he's been good. Like you can't ask for anything more than he's basically done since he's come here within reason. Like he, you know, he's been as productive, I should say sure. not anything more. He's been as productive as you could expect him to be since signing here. But yeah, you're right. In terms of like controlling the play in terms of like impacting shifts, like it's, it, you know, shift by shift basis, like a lot of just taking shifts. He's on the power play because he makes $10 million. He's completely ineffective on the power play yeah. at this point too. Like that, uh, now we're getting into some other kind of nitty gritty yeah. stuff, but. He, yeah, he's not even like, he, when he first got here, he was really good at hounding pucks. If anything was loose below the goal line or whatever, like he was an animal. Yeah. Now he's a little, he's a little slow to get to it. He's not coming out with the pucks the way he used to. Definitely not on a consistent basis. Once in a while he can dig deep, but 
not an, and then you kind of look and you're like, to me, like the dream scenario would be like, you have camp and angle on the fourth line. And a competent like, third, and right? A competent third line yeah. with like, I didn't mind when they tried to put Nylander on the third line. Me neither. Just, but like, but like when you play him with camp, like, you know, that there's a shelf life to it, right? Like he's <laughs> like Nylander sitting there. Like, I'm not seriously playing with this guy's my center for like 40 games. It's just not happening. Like, how can it happen? So my theory here is whenever Tavares was struggling last year, Hyman was thrown onto that line. I think that Hyman masked a ton of stuff that was happening with Tavares. And we never got to see the futility of his game in the playoffs because he got busted up in the first game against Montreal. This is what we see Tavares is moving forward. And I recognize that I might be picking on him, but these are the core players that we're talking about is supposed to be driving the bus for Toronto. He's not a core player anymore. You have to start treating him with what he is, not what he's getting paid for. Which which will be tough for them to to do. And I know Tavares just see, I think everyone sees it. I think people are tough to like it's tough for people to acknowledge it at times, really. But like no one, like no one in their right mind is just watching with their eyes and like saying this guy's this guy's sick like this guy's <laughs> you know no one is sitting there like when when you watch them like and matthews and marner hop the boards and like my eyes perk up a little bit like I yeah, a little bit you go to the eye. edge of the seat yeah, yeah you're ready yeah. to go like Nylander takes like two hard strides and like is cutting through the neutral zone i'm like all right like something's happening like could be crazy like i don't know but like something magical could happen like tavares hops the boards and i'm like Man, he's laboring out there. <laughs> man, man, those strides look tough. <laughs> when he's with, when he was briefly with Bunting and Meyer, though, you saw like when he, when he's with guys that can get him yeah. playing in like a half, like a half zone sort of offense. Clever little he, passes, little touches. He still has it down there, but yeah, as an elite and, play driving C, he's like that's two years ago, if not more now. Um, yeah, and if you're not an elite play driving C in the Leafs model, where they're like we need two really good lines and then we're going to like go to the bargain bin for the bottom two lines. Yeah. yeah. My final, my final note, because Anthony said uh, he was happy Spencer retired, which from a, like a fourth line construction standpoint, I totally understand, but I do want to give him his fair shout out to close this because I thought like, if you take it back to when Tavares signed to come home and chase cups in Toronto uh, optimism was at an all-time high. Then the way that contracts played out with the young core for me and for a lot of people in the market was a real splash of cold water, I think, in the face. Nylander holds out, Marner holds out, takes at least for max dollar. Even the Matthews deal doesn't give you the warm and fuzzies at like one with the one UFC season, UFA season at 11.6. Five-year term. Mm. Yeah. I'm not saying it's true that those players don't want to win here. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not blaming them for getting paid, but it felt like it was sort of that dream scenario, but having this rock star young core with Tavares coming home to lead the way was kind of shattering a bit for me in terms of just realizing, man, like we have a hard cap here. We have players that aren't conceding an inch on contracts. This is business first. When Spezza came in a year later and stayed home on league minimum deals, I thought it was a much needed injection of someone coming here and influencing the culture who just wanted to win and wanted to do it in a leaf sweater so badly. Uh, I get that he had earned his money already, so it's not a comparison to the young core, but I still think the team needed that at the time in the wake of everything else that had just transpired. Uh, Spezza's answer on his way out uh, last week, where he said the lack of a cup will always leave a hole in his heart and in his career, super tough to hear. 
Um, and that's what I'll miss about him most. I think he's right. Like he was a step slower this past season. He's no longer a lineup lock, but in that sense, I also respect that he wants to go out now rather than clinging on or doing what he, I think he described it as um, really aptly. Actually, he described it as taking advantage of his reputation. He didn't want to do that around the league. We saw how that works with Patty Marlowe <laughs> hanging on and hanging on. I don't have, I have, a ton of, I have a ton of respect for what he did in saying that, um, that I you know I'm going out on my terms before I'm a liability because it's best for the team um, rather than sort of selfishly chasing milestones. So it was very, uh, to do it five points shy of a thousand points, it's very Spezza of him. I think it's another example of why he was so beloved and respected here. Um, and I also, final note, I have to love that, like the third best player in Sense franchise history behind Elfie and, Spe- and uh, Carlson <laughs> ends, uh, ends his playing career here and starts his managerial career in Toronto, where his heart clearly was all along. Drop that mic, Alec. Drop the mic. <laughs> nah. Just drop the mic. Yeah, and I wasn't talking shit about Spezza. Yeah, I know, like, I know. I, I, I love Spezza as, as a guy, and I have all the time in the world for him. And he seems to be the only guy that actually spoke in that room when things got tough and uh, wasn't afraid to call guys out. And the fight against Dean Kukin was basically the best playoff moment we've had in these like embarrassing seven years of first-round futility. So thank you for that. And but from a roster construction standpoint, I stand by it. I still think that they could bring in a guy just with younger legs and a guy who's a little bit more energetic. I think a guy like Alex Steves, like you mentioned is potentially a prime candidate to just go in there and say, run around like your little puppy dog, just playing in the backyard. Like just wants to, you go nuts, like every shift and bring that heat, which I think they need. Like, I think they've missed guys that they've tried at times with older players like Wayne Simmons and Kyle Clifford, and they have moments, but they're older now so they can't do it every night that's what happens when you age as i'm finding out myself it just you can't do it every night anymore right so you need the you need the young legs to come in but kudos to spets on a great career alec thanks for finally hopping on gus thanks for joining did you get to say everything you want to say i saw everything i wanted to say thank you guys so very much i appreciate that very much awesome talk soon talk soon I know what I see.